game our kids enjoy is Monopoly. And they sometimes go for hours before determining a winner. But I, a common groan I hear is this one. Oh! <laughs> Inevitably, that means one of them landed between Reading Railroad and Baltic Avenue, that fun square called Income Taxes. Pay 10% or $200. Ugh! Taxes! To which every adult is thinking, you have no idea. This morning we come to an interesting passage that involves a question about taxes. But don't let that word frighten you away. Don't groan and move along. Things aren't as they appear. Yes, Jesus will pay a tax, but the point isn't about taxes, we will find. Jesus seizes the moment to clarify the nature of his mission. He wants Peter to understand why he must die. So let's read it together, beginning in verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to Peter first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So there are two scenes that make up this passage. And the first scene comes in verses 22 to 23. Jesus retells his pending death and resurrection. The second scene comes in verses 24 to 27 with this question about paying the the two drachma tax. Often people will see no connection uh, between this second scene and what Jesus has just said about his death. Jesus' teaching then gets reduced to some moral lessons about our civil responsibilities. But what if this second scene where Jesus makes a payment on Peter's behalf, what if that scene is meant to illustrate something far more about the nature of Jesus' death. I think that's exactly what's happening. But let's begin by reviewing the first scene in verses 22 to 23 
where Jesus retells his pending death and resurrection. Jesus retells his pending death and resurrection. Uh, Not too long ago, in chapter 16, we reached a turning point in Matthew's gospel. Jesus had alluded to his death before, uh, like when he mentioned the bridegroom being taken away in chapter 9, or or when he talks later about the Son of Man being in the heart of the earth, three days and three nights. Uh, But in chapter 16, verse 21, he, he got explicit, didn't he? It says, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And from that moment, Jesus then you find Jesus repeatedly teaching about his coming death. We encountered it again in chapter 17, verse 12. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And now we find it here in verse 22 He says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And what we see there in that word, delivered, is he's adding another element. It's the same word that's applied throughout Matthew's gospel uh, for Judas's betrayal. Okay, so one of his closest friends also will betray him into the hands of men, and they will kill the Son of Man, and he says, and he will be raised on the third day. Now remember that The Son of Man uh, is that royal figure from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, 13 to 14. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You can imagine, with that image of the Son of Man in their mind, you can imagine why the disciples are so distressed in verse 23. That Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men? They will kill Him? They can't see beyond the cross to the glory of resurrection, which Jesus also spoke about. He also promised that he will be raised on the third day. But it doesn't make sense to them. Their view of things doesn't allow for for a Messiah uh, who first suffers and dies. And if he was going to suffer and die, why? I think that's the question Matthew wants in your mind before reading verse 24. Why does Jesus keep saying that he, as Messiah, must suffer and die? Why must the Son of Man be killed? What will such a death accomplish? And I believe the second scene answers these questions by way of illustration. Okay, Jesus illustrates the nature of his saving death. In verses 24 to 27, Jesus illustrates the nature of his saving death. There are three parts that make up this scene. Part one is this question about paying the temple tax. Uh, Verse 24, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax, okay, which, so this was a tax that was taken up for the temple. Uh, a drachma was equivalent to a, a, a denarius, which was about a day's wages. So this tax is about two days' wages. 
Anyway, these, these collectors ask Peter, does your teacher not pay the tax? Now, in the broader context, that question makes sense, right? There's been some tensions rising uh, with Jesus. He's teaching on things like Sabbath and defilement, and, and it's in a way that, that kind of goes against their, their traditions. Earlier, Jesus declared how something greater than the temple was here in him. And so it makes sense why this, these questions about the temple tax would arise. And their assumption here in asking Jesus is that he does pay the tax. Your, your teacher, he pays the tax, doesn't he? And Peter is saying, yeah, he does. Peter doesn't yet know why Jesus pays the tax. Jesus will clarify that later. For now, though, it's better to stop and ask what this tax was for. Okay, and I think we'll find our answer in Exodus chapter 30. If you would put a finger in Matthew 17 and turn with me back to Exodus chapter 30. Exodus 30, verse 11. Page 71, if you're using a few Bible. So Exodus 30, verse 11, God says this to Moses. When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel. That's, half a shekel was two drachma. Okay? Half a shekel, according to the the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel, and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord, so as to make atonement for your lives." Now, notice a few things about this tax. It's called a ransom in verse 12. It's called atonement money in verse 16. And the idea was a payment made for the purpose of escaping God's punishment. Uh, In particular, escaping death. Notice in verse 12, it's a ransom for his life to the Lord that there may be no plague among them. In verse 15, the payment... Made is, is made, uh, it says it made atonement for their lives. So that's one purpose for this tax, escaping God's punishment. Another purpose was related to enjoying God's presence. Verse 16 says that the tax served the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord. So the money supported the tent of meeting, the place where God chose to dwell with His people through the sacrifices. Now, it's less clear whether every Israelite in Jesus' day still had these things in mind when they paid this tax. 
There were occasions even in in Israel's history where the people neglected this tax and the leaders had to bring it to their attention. So it happened uh, with the first temple in 2 Chronicles 29 and then again with uh, with the second temple in Nehemiah chapter 10. But Exodus 30 explains the original significance of this two drachma tax. It was a payment for atonement that the people might escape God's punishment and enjoy God's presence. So keep that backdrop in mind and let's look at the next part of this scene. Jesus shows Peter how God's son's not obligated to pay the tax. So back in chapter 17 of Matthew, verse 25, when Peter came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when Peter said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. Now, this is another place where people get confused. Um, The question was about the temple tax, Uh, But Jesus shifts to civil taxes. So does that mean he's now teaching whether, you know, we should pay civil taxes or something like that? Uh, Also, when he says the sons are free, is is he making a point about Israel or his disciples or primarily himself? And here's how I'm reading it. Jesus shifts to the civil realm only to draw an analogy for Peter. Okay, earthly kings do not require their sons to pay taxes. Their sons are free. They're not obligated to pay. And Jesus then takes that analogy and he's applying it to himself as son of God. Okay, so so Peter, Peter had recently confessed Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God. And then chapters 16 and 17 have been emphasizing Jesus as son of man. And now he's drawing an analogy between the sons of earthly kings and the sons of the heavenly king. To use the words of of D.A. Carson here, the point is that just as royal sons are exempt from the taxes imposed by their fathers, so too Jesus is exempt from the tax imposed by his father. Jesus acknowledges the temple tax to be an obligation to God, but since he is uniquely God's son... Therefore, he is exempt. Now, if we return to some of the points we learned in Exodus chapter 30, Jesus is exempt from the temple tax because he has no need to escape God's punishment. Right? He is without sin. He has no need for paying atonement money to spare his life. As son, he already shares perfect fellowship with the Father. He has enjoyed God's presence from eternity past. He's free from any obligation to pay the temple tax. He is greater than the temple. That's what it said in Matthew 12. So Peter was right in saying Jesus does pay the tax, but Jesus wants Peter to know. That's why he finds him first. Hey, I heard what you said back there. But I want you to know why I'm paying this, right? I don't know it like the others. 
Nevertheless, look at what he chooses to do in the last part of this scene. God's Son willingly provides payment for others. So verse 27, However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now what's interesting is it stops there. Matthew stops short of reporting how the miracle happened. He gives no account of Peter going out and catching the fish, finding the shekel. And this has led some to, to say, well, perhaps Jesus was you know, just turning the whole situation into a joke. Right? As if to say, get on, with, get on with your fishing, Peter. The tax will look after itself. However, nothing in the text indicates such sarcasm. I think it's better to assume the miracle did happen, but that Matthew's amazement lies elsewhere. Not in a shekel from the fish's mouth, but in the royal son of God, stooping to make the payment he didn't have to. Even in the way Jesus pays the tax, Jesus proves for Peter that he's the son of God. He controls nature. The first fish that comes up, you'll find it. As son, Jesus is free. But we see here that he doesn't insist on his own rights. Rather, he forgoes his rights as son and willingly submits to the law's demands here. Right? Instead of causing a big ruckus, To prove that he is the privileged son. He humbles himself beneath the law. Both to fulfill the law's demands. And to make a payment on Peter's behalf. So part of the beauty of this passage. Is how personal Jesus makes this. Give it to them them for me. And for yourself Peter. In other words, that's why I came, Peter, to make a payment in your place, to pay your atonement, to count you among God's children as well. So I think the point of this second scene illustrates why the Son of Man must first suffer and die. In the same way the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sins under the law, this tax never really settled the deal for any true atonement payment either. It was always pointing forward to a better payment, a a full atonement payment. We, like Peter, need someone to, to make that payment in our place. Our sins deserve God's punishment of death. Our sins have separated us from God's presence. Our sins do not allow us to enjoy God's presence. But in Jesus Christ, God has provided a payment for our atonement. And that payment is the life of His only Son. By dying on the cross, Jesus became our ransom so that we can escape God's punishment 
and enjoy God's presence. Elsewhere, the New Testament speaks of Jesus' death the same way. Take Mark 10.45, for instance. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Ransom has to do, again, with making a payment to free someone. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 says, "...to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold." He's comparing it to a kind of payment, but not like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 is another. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. So God bought you at the cost of His own Son's life. And then there's also Isaiah 55, verse 2, where, where this, this idea of payment is implied. Isaiah 55, verse 2, where, where God is inviting everyone. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Notice in Isaiah 55, Verse 2, without money and without price. Right? When, when God speaks of those without money, we can go back to Isaiah chapter 44 and we learn why they have no money. Because they made their money, they got their silver, and they took it to the silversmith so he could fashion for them an idol. That's why they don't have any money. They're, they've bankrupted themselves on chasing idols. And God is inviting these kinds of people to himself. Of course, the question is, how, is the, how can the most holy God invite such idolaters so freely? Isn't there a price to pay for sin? Yes. But when we read Isaiah 55 in its broader context, we find that someone else paid the price. Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So the guilt we incurred for sin must be punished. The Lord's solution was to place that punishment that we deserved on the servant who is Jesus. Our entry comes at his cost. He paid the atonement for our sins, and He paid it all. That's why God can say, come, all who are thirsty. Amen is right, Donnie. Brothers and sisters, the Son of God made a payment that He did not owe. He willingly laid down His life to become your atonement. When you belong to Jesus, you are now free from God's punishment and free to enjoy God's presence. This is wonderful news, isn't it? I mean, isn't this a picture we all need today? You know, whether it was something you were supposed to do this week and didn't, or something you 
shouldn't have done, but did. Whether it's something sinful from your past or some besetting sin in the present. Whether it's a wrong committed overtly or, or a wrong you, that, that nobody else would ever know in your thoughts. We all need atonement before God. We all need to be reminded of why Jesus died. That's why we gather and, and, and sing together. That's why we gather at the, at the Lord's Supper together to re, to every week to remind us of the price that Jesus paid for our sins. We never grow beyond our need for this good news. Why else are there so many songs about the payment that Jesus made for us? Listen, listen to just a few of them. To this dear surety's hand will I commit my cause He answers and fulfills His Father's broken laws. Behold my soul at freedom set. My surety paid the dreadful debt. Or this one. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Or the one you sang earlier, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We'll do one more. You are the way to God. Your blood our ransom paid. In you we face our judge and maker unafraid. Before the throne absolved we stand Your love has met your law's demand. And on and on the songs go in the Christian faith. Why? Because we never get over it. So rejoice in this awesome work. Celebrate the the, the, the awesome salvation that God has accomplished for you. Again, you, you have to love how Jesus does this for Peter, right? Peter, he pulls Peter aside, the one who keeps sticking his foot in his mouth, the one who still has little faith. Last Sunday we learned he was among the disciples whose response to Jesus looked more like the faithless and twisted generation around him. And yet here is this picture of Jesus right after that pulling Peter aside as if to say, I got you covered. I don't know anything here, but I love you and I will lay down my life for you, Peter. And that's what he does for every person who trusts Jesus and chooses to follow him. If you're here today and you haven't chosen to follow Jesus, what's holding you back? Right? Is it your sins? Do you think there's too many? Are you trying to pay things off yourself with good deeds? You won't be able to. But Jesus can, and he did. On the cross. So don't hold back from following him and making that trust public through baptism. For those of you who are Christians, keep preaching this good news to yourself and to each other. Preach it to yourself when you need renewed confidence that your punishment is taken away. Preach it to yourself when, whenever you approach the Lord in prayer, knowing that in Christ you can enjoy God's presence. Preach it to yourself at work and at the dinner table, and in times of need, and at moments when you can't get out of the car because your soul is so downcast. 
because Jesus paid for you, this means that God is with you everywhere you are. He paid for you to enjoy God's presence. Always. Also, preach it to others. Before the uh, prayer meeting this past Tuesday, Wes shared some lyrics with me from a music artist who goes by the name of Jelly Roll. All right. The song here describes his own battle with addiction. He says, Somebody save me, me from myself. I've spent so long living in hell. They may say my lifestyle is, they say my lifestyle is bad for my health. It's the only thing that seems to help. All of this drinking and smoking is hopeless, but feel like it's all that I need. Something inside of me is broken. I hold on to anything that sets me free. I'm a lost cause. Baby, don't waste your time on me. I'm so damaged beyond repair. Life has shattered my hopes and my dreams. Many people have a story like that. Many people that you know. Some of you had a story like that. And then you heard about the son paying the price to bring you back to God. What great hope we have to offer to people in places like that. We have the only message to set people free truly. Jesus paid the price to set them free and to make them sons and daughters. So so tell of this good news. Find ways to share it with others. And then as you're preaching this gospel to yourself and to others, let it shape the way you live before others. Let Jesus' humility so shape you that your life becomes a fitting illustration of the gospel you bring to others. I mean, think of, we see Jesus' humility here in, in that he, he doesn't insist on his own rights. He doesn't, he doesn't, uh, right, doesn't cause this big ruckus, but he, he willingly sets aside these prerogatives as son to, to then submit to, submit himself beneath the law and in order to fulfill it on behalf of others. And you see that the Apostle Paul kind of imitating this this humility of Jesus throughout his own gospel ministry and his instructions to the church. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10, right? You get this situation where some Christians are asserting their rights to to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Right? They, they They know there's no such thing as these false gods because there's only one true God. And and so they, they, just eat, they just eat the meat, and they have zero concern for how they're causing some of the weaker Christians to stumble. And Paul tells them, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. This is right after Paul says, like lays out the theology of why he has the right to eat the meat. But if it's going to destroy his brother, he says, no, thank you. And shortly after that, he says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win 
more of them. That's the attitude we find in Jesus in Matthew 17. Paul preaches Jesus and he imitates Jesus. We find the same kind of thing in Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes there, do, not, do, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And I want you to think about Matthew 17 and what we've heard today as I read Philippians 2. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. How did he empty himself? What does that mean there? It means he took the form of of a servant, right? By taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So again, we're seeing as son, he had every right to be seen as glorious. He had every right to force people to, to, to see how amazing and holy and awesome he was But he set aside that right to take the form of a servant. That's the attitude we observed in Matthew 17. And Paul says the same mind ought to be present in Jesus' people. Or think of of the way Paul handled the situation with Onesimus. Remember Onesimus? Onesimus was a, a slave to Philemon. And Onesimus runs away. And as God's providence worked it out, runs into Paul, gets saved, right? And Paul is now sending Onesimus back to to Philemon, and he encourages Philemon to receive Onesimus no longer as a slave, but as a brother. And then he says this to Philemon, in this Philemon 17, if Onesimus has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account, and I'll repay it. You see, Paul has been so captivated by the humility of Jesus, of Jesus stooping to make a payment for him, that it affects the way he lives. Charge that to my account. I'll pay it. That's a picture of what Jesus did for us in a far greater way. All of our sinful debt was charged to his account and he paid it all with his life. When that message truly grips us, it will shape the way we live with others. Your own life will fit the message that you preach to others. This is why in uh, our Membership Matters class, we, 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 not, we, don't, we not only talk about why we preach the gospel and what we preach as the gospel, but we also talk about how we preach the gospel. And one of those ways of how we preach the gospel is in a way that fits the message. 
right? So if, if we're talking about a gospel where God condescended to us and, 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 and came down and, and humbled himself on our sake, we don't go in with proud, arrogant hearts towards others. That would be unfitting to the message, right? Same way here. When your life exhibits this humility of Jesus, it should, it should match the gospel we're preaching. Right? It, it, our, our lives should authenticate the message we're bringing to others. And so if we're preaching about Jesus, who set aside his rights in order to serve his brother, in order to make a payment for others, ought we not do the same in our manner towards others? Set aside your rights. You might be free. But are you willing to go down in order to serve? That's what we see in our Savior. Willingly, he humbled himself to become our atonement. He didn't have to, but he chose to make the the payment for our sins that we might escape God's punishment and enjoy God's presence. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I, I pray that you would... Give us grace as a church to exemplify the message we preach. That you would work, so work these things into us that we would walk in humility before others, willingly setting aside our, our rights to serve, to save, to see others loving your truth. Um, I pray that you would also make this awesome message of Jesus paying for us, uh, that you would encourage the weak and the faint-hearted with it today, that you would save the rebel, that you would humble the proud, Uh, that you would give us grace as a body to, to rejoice in the saving work of Jesus and what you've done through him. Um, I ask that as we come to the Lord's Supper and, and other singing, that you would renew our hearts with these truths and Make them all all the more sweeter to us. Do this by your spirit, we ask. Amen.